Welcome to another Alive at Springwood podcast, brought to you by Springwood Presbyterian Churches, where we don't believe churches are buildings. Churches are people. Disciples of Jesus bound together in diversity by God's love, while pursuing faithfulness and vulnerability, celebration and lament, reading the Bible and prayer. May you be encouraged and God glorified by this edition. Our great God, you commanded light to shine out of darkness. Now by the power of your spirit, shine the light of your words into our hearts. Give us the light of the knowledge of your glory in the face of Christ, that we may look to him and believe in him and live. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live in a spiritual bazaar filled with uh, stalls, big and small, selling all kinds of religious products. So if you've ever been to Paddy's Markets or somewhere like that, and you can uh, imagine all the stall holders spruiking their wares, there's so many variations and options and styles. If you're looking for a new hat or some spices or a knife or all sorts of other things, you know, there's an overwhelming variety on offer. And in our culture, spirituality and religion are like that. Uh, the word people often use for it is pluralism. There's multiple options. We're surrounded by a mosaic of beliefs and practices, all sorts of colours and shapes and sizes and textures. Uh, in Australia, the question about religion is not binary. It's not just do you believe in God or not. It's not just, are you a Protestant or a Catholic? There's lots of possibilities. All sorts of versions of Christianity, variations of Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam. There's you know, boutique options, versions of personal fulfilment, uh, holistic living for customers who are spiritual but not religious. And there's no rule that you can only allow to shop at one stall. You can go to several of them and take samples and Go home and make up your own mix. Now, that's not really the way it was expected to turn out. You know, 30 or 40 years ago, lots of commentators assumed that secularisation was going to lead to the demise of religion, that more and more people would take on a materialist, non-religious way of understanding the life and religion and the world and religion would just sort of fade away. But what happened was actually way more complicated than that. Uh, certainly in Australia, the proportion of Christians has reduced because of immigration and other factors. And so we've got more and more people around who identify with the uh, great global religions. And in Australia, there's also been a rise of people who say they have no religion in the latest census, around about 30% of Australians say they have no religion. But when you look in on more closely at what those people who are saying they have no religion believe, uh, the majority of them, at least two-thirds, maybe up to over 80%, would say they still have a spiritual interest, they still think a spiritual dimension to life matters, but they're not part of an organised traditional religion. Uh, and so the no-religion folk are shopping at the spiritual bazaar uh, along with the religious people. Because humanity is naturally spiritual. We aren't satisfied with just 
the stuff that we own and even with our human relationships. We, we want something more. We're looking for meaning and purpose. Uh, we want a deeper connection with the world and with ourselves. And, and interestingly, this spiritual quest seems to have grown over the last two years. Uh, some of the research says that during the pandemic, uh, about half Australians say that they're more likely to have thought about the meaning of life than they were before the pandemic. Uh, about half Australians, half, half the population of Australia said they're more likely to have thought about their own mortality than they were before the pandemic. About a third say they think more about God uh, because of it. Uh, and that's actually even more uh, a bigger increase in the younger generation, under 25s, 60% say they've thought more about the meaning of life in the last two years. 40% say they're more likely to have had a spiritual conversation in the last two years. So that, that's not about coming back to church. It's certainly not coming back to traditional churches, some people have, but lots of shopping at other stalls in the spiritual bazaar. Now, in many ways, Jesus is a total contrast to the pluralism of the bazaar. His claims are exclusive, and uh, this passage that we're looking at this evening confronts us with that. Look at the final verse in chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. It's hard to be much more exclusive than that. And that's pretty confronting and uncomfortable. At the bazaar, every stallholder is welcome. They can stock whatever they want. In fact, the more the better. That's what makes it so fascinating and fun. And as you explore your own understanding of life and your self-direction, why not sample and experiment and try different things and take bits and pieces? And to try and close that all down and say everyone has to go to one place and one person seems intolerant, bigoted, oppressive. So, so what do we do with the exclusive claims of Jesus? How does he fit into this spiritual marketplace? Uh, the end of John raises that question, or John 3 rather, raises that question intensely. But, but I think this whole passage actually helps us to see some of the answer to that as well. So let's see what this passage is talking about, and, and we'll come back to that question of pluralism. It be, the passage begins with John the Baptist, and even uh, the, John the Baptist's presence reminds us that the first century Israel had its own version of the, uh, of the spiritual bazaar. Um, there were some Jews who were attracted to Greek thought and wanted a bit of Stoicism or uh, Platonism mixed into their Judaism, they'd be called Hellenists and they're perhaps represented by the Herodians that we meet in the New Testament. Then of course there are the Sadducees who have a more traditional uh, Jew Judaism, the, the Pharisees who emphasise keeping of the law and looking for God's kingdom to break in, uh, the Qumran sect who have left the uncleanness of society and gone off to start their own commune. Uh, and so in the middle of all of that, John has made a really big impact. Uh, back in chapter 1, we were told that John was baptising near the Jordan River 
uh, about 30 kilometres from Jerusalem, but quite a difficult journey. Uh, but he'd made enough, got enough attention that uh, the leaders from, from Jerusalem had sent people out to interview him and check out what was going on. And the other Gospels tell us people were coming from all around Judea uh, to be baptised by him. And then here in chapter 3, uh, he's in the same area and still getting lots of attention. People are coming out to him and getting baptised. But his star is waning. He's no longer the new big thing on the religious scene. And so his disciples come to him, verse 26, and they, they say to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptising and everyone's going to him. Talking about Jesus. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 4, just past the passage we're focusing on this evening, uh, John tells us a little bit more about this. He says, uh, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptising more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptised, but his disciples. So presumably John's followers are disappointed, confused, perhaps even a little bit envious. And this, in fact, is the last that we hear of John the Baptist in, uh, the, in John's Gospel. He is disappearing from the scene. In fact, verse 24 reminds us that this is just before he's put in prison. And the other Gospels tell us that he was arrested and ultimately put to death by, uh, by Herod. Uh, so he's fading away. But look at his response. He's completely unconcerned by that. In fact, he says, this is exactly the way things are meant to turn out. He states a general principle in verse 27, a person can receive only what is given to him or to them from heaven. And things work out the way God's planned. That's what he's saying. Uh, God gives a task, gives a calling, he gives a role, he gives a certain following for a certain period and John's received that and he's played his part. But his part all along was to point to Jesus. In fact, he reminds them. Verse 28, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, I was the one who was sent ahead of him. And if you go back into chapter 1, that's what John said again and again and again. Uh, I'm not the light, I'm not the Messiah. Then when Jesus comes on the scene, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one to look at and focus on. John's role was not about building his own following, but to point people to Jesus. Uh, now, I forgot to check. That I did have a slide. You got that slide there? Great. Well done. Uh, this is a, a, a little part from the Altarpiece of Eisenheim by Matthias Grunwald, a, a late Middle Ages artist. And the whole picture is a portrait of Jesus' crucifixion. But here's John the Baptist in the picture. Now, of course, John the Baptist wasn't actually at Jesus' crucifixion. Um, but the artist put him in there. And here he is, John the Witness. In fact, John the Pointer with his exaggerated big finger. And the Latin behind him is John 3.30. He must increase, I must decrease. That's John's motto. It's about Jesus. 
not me. I want people to know Jesus, to praise him, to follow him, to love him. More and more people going to Jesus, well, that's the goal. That's why John has come. And John says he's like the best man at the wedding. Uh, The best man needs to remember that it's not actually about him. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been to some weddings where at least in the best man's speech, it did kind of feel like it was about the best man rather than the bride and groom. Uh, But John's clear, verse 29, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. In fact, in Jesus' day, uh, the friend of the bridegroom had a bigger job than the best man in our weddings. Uh, He really was responsible for arranging and running the the event. Uh, He's made all the preparations and now he's waiting for the groom to arrive. And when he knows that the groom is there, his job's finished and he rejoices at that. Uh, John may be thinking of hearing the groom coming down the road arriving at the wedding party. He may be thinking of hearing the bridegroom go into the bedroom with the bride and hearing his voice in there. But either way, the point is, uh, the wedding has arrived and it's about the wedding and it's about the bridegroom, not about the person who helped to do some of the preparations. And the friend rejoices. And I'm sure it's significant that that John speaks about Jesus as the bridegroom. Because several places in the Old Testament, uh, God is described as being the husband for his people Israel and even for the bridegroom when Israel is his bride. And we read one example of that in Isaiah 62, where Isaiah describing how the Lord will rescue and love his people. The city of Jerusalem is in ruins. Uh, It's been attacked, but the Lord will restore it re-establish his people, there's joy and rebuilding and blessing. It's like a wedding. The prophet says, the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married as a young man marries a young woman, so your builder will marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God, so will your God rejoice over you. And other prophets use similar imagery as well. And so when John says, I'm not the Messiah, he's the Messiah and the bridegroom belongs to the bride. This is not just a kind of casual illustration. He's saying the bride belongs to the bridegroom. This is the long-expected bridegroom. This is the Lord come to save and claim his people. And so even in John's last words as he fades away and explains why he's rejoicing, he does this all pointing to Jesus. Not look at not me, look at the bridegroom. Here's the Lord come to claim his people. And as we move into the rest of the passage, I think John the Baptist has stopped speaking at that point. And what we have then are comments from John, the Gospel writer. It does get a bit confusing because there's so many Johns and, you know, I sympathise with that problem. Um, 
Ancient Greek manuscripts didn't have quotation marks to tell you when one person stops speaking and the next person starts. But I think the NIV is right when it closes John the Baptist's words at verse 30. And verse 31 is a kind of editorial comment. The gospel writer reminding us of key truths that he's already shown us earlier in the book and, and reminding us of them here. Showing us why Jesus really is the bridegroom. And so three things I want you to notice that he says then about Jesus. One is that Jesus has come from God, his origin. Uh, as we keep going through John's gospel, uh, one of the key indicators of someone having spiritual insight or not having spiritual insight in John's gospel is whether they know where Jesus is from. Uh, as we read through the stories, you'll notice that. People who say, I don't know where he's from, they've got no idea about Jesus. If they do know where he's from, then they do understand if they recognise that he's from above. That's his true origin. He's from God. And of course, uh, John's Gospel has told us from the very beginning, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. He was God. Uh, this is the one and only Son who is himself God and has come from the Father's side, come from the most intimate relationship with the Father. And so because he's come from God, he's authorised. He comes with God's authority. He's above all. Well, down in verse 35, the Father has placed everything in his hands. He's come as the intimate one who's loved by the Father, verse 35 as well. The Father loves the Son. He's been given the Spirit in full abundance, uh, been given God's power to live for him. So you see the contrast but with John. Uh, John receives what's been given from heaven, but he's the one who comes from the earth and speaks as one from the earth. He only can speak of that which has been revealed to him, but Jesus comes from God, as God. He is the bridegroom for the bride. There can't be anybody else. Uh, and that the imagery of bride and bridegroom is you know, completely opposite to the imagery of the spiritual bazaar. It's about the one true groom. And John's comments particularly stress Jesus' words. Like John the witness, Jesus testifies, but he can testify to what he has seen and heard. And so, verse 32, he testifies to what he has seen and heard. No one accepts his testimony. John's already warned us of that. Um, he's came to those who his own, but his own would not receive him. We've seen people in Jerusalem, we've seen Nicodemus not listen to Jesus. But whoever has, has accepted what Jesus says has certified that God is truthful, have recognised that this is indeed truth from God. Other prophets, the scriptures are the word, God's word, but Jesus is the full, perfect, complete word of God. What he says is full and final revelation. And so Jesus is different to any other religious teacher, uh, different to all the other stallholders or the stallholders at the bazaar. Like John the Baptist, they have to offer something else or someone else. But Jesus is God speaking truth 
about himself. And because he is from God and speaks God's truth, he brings God's life. And so verse 36, we hear, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Now, in in the Bible, and especially in John's Gospel, uh, eternal life is not mainly about quantity. It's not just saying you've got life that goes on and on forever. As far as you look down the timeline, there's no end to this. It's about quality. The words really mean life from the age to come, life from God's kingdom and His glory. Uh, Later in John's Gospel, Jesus says in prayer to the Father, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is to be brought into the fellowship of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, to be embraced in God's life. And so when you trust Jesus and receive his word, you have eternal life already. You are a child of God, welcomed by him. You have his presence and his blessing. You're in union and communion with him. And what a contrast here. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. And so we have the confronting truth that humans face God's anger. And this is another way in which Jesus challenges pluralism. Religion and spirituality are not... About find, they're not just about finding meaning and purpose, important as that is. They're not just about exploring our identity or expressing our experience of the cosmos. Uh, every human faces the most extreme spiritual crisis, which we cannot possibly solve from our side. We face God's wrath. Now, now it is shocking to think of God's anger. You know, as you wander the spiritual bazaar, there's not a lot of stalls that have got that on offer. A Christian understanding is that God's anger is not despite his love, but it's because of his love. God has made us in his image. He's made a world that he treasures. And when we turn our back on him and walk away from him, when we mistreat one another and abuse the world he has made, his holy love meets that that denies him in just anger. Not not like our anger, it's not out of control, he's not lashing out, he's not selfish and petulant, it's just, it's the proper expression of his love. And so John's comment here reminds us that the starting point for all humans is that God's wrath remains on them unless Jesus makes a difference. And of course that takes us back to the passage last week. People want darkness instead of light. But Jesus has come to those people so they would not perish but have eternal life so they'll come into God's light. Jesus is God come from God, with God's authority, with God's words, bringing eternal life instead of wrath. That's, again, the difference between Christianity and any other religion or spirituality. 
The Christian message is not about what we could do better, about how we could find connection or maturity or contentment. It's about how God has come to do what we cannot do. Let me read you some words from uh, the 16th century reformer John Calvin as he reflects on why the Incarnation. He says, It was imperative that he who was to become our Redeemer be true God and true man. It was his task to swallow up death. Who but life could do this? It was his task to conquer sin. Who but very righteousness could do this? It was his task to rout the powers of world and air. Who but a power higher than world and air could do this? Now where does life or righteousness or lordship and authority of heaven lie but with God alone? Therefore our most merciful God, when he willed that we be redeemed, made himself our redeemer in the person of his only begotten son. So we can summarise this passage with uh, John the Baptist's words, I must become less, he must become greater. Or, or perhaps even more succinctly, it's about Jesus. Uh, when you walk around the spirituality bazaar, there's all sorts of products and lifestyles and religions on offer and some are intriguing and some are uh, uncomfortable, some are comfortable, some are challenging, but there's no stall at that bazaar that is like Jesus the bridegroom. God himself come for his people, come to people who don't know him, who can't find him, who are lost in darkness, who face his wrath and only God coming from his side can bring real light and eternal life. And so Jesus is exclusive and the message of salvation is about him. When you see how deep our problem is and that God has done what we need, then you can see why there's no other way to know God. Now, it's not that we're going to close down the bazaar. People are naturally spiritual and they're going to keep looking for spiritual answers. And I think our current religious diversity and spiritual hunger mean there are opportunities for conversations about Jesus. But we need to be clear that Jesus is not just one product amongst many in the marketplace. He is all there is. He is the bridegroom. And so I think that tells us something about our witness. You know, we want to be like John the Baptist and point people to Jesus, not to us. When, when you talk to your non-Christian friends... It's not just that you've got some tips for life or a bit of wisdom you can share, that you might have that, but the best that you can offer them, all that you can offer them in the end is to tell them about Jesus. You want conversations to move from talking about life and spirituality to talking about Jesus. You want to tell them about Jesus and get them to think about him and read about him. Uh, it's certainly a warning for any preacher or any ministry. It has to be about Jesus not us. It's not self-promotion. It's Jesus' promotion. He's the bridegroom. It's a good test for a preacher. It's scary to make this application, but 
You know, do you finish hearing a sermon impressed by the preacher or directed to Jesus? I think we need to be careful about how we think about church. We often ask, how do we best embody the gospel? How do we live out the kingdom now? And there's such important questions to ask. But no one's saved by experiencing church. You have to encounter Jesus. And we want our fellowship to be about him and his message. We want to be like John. Jesus is the bridegroom. Turn to him. Listen to him. Believe in him.